Welcome to the Berkhamsted Spotlight, Berkhamsted School's podcast channel. Join our weekly guests from inside the classroom to behind the scenes of our day-to-day -day activities through to life beyond Berkhamsted School. Find out what it's really like to be part of our remarkable community. Remarkable community indeed. This is the Berkhamsted Spotlight and today we're talking all about what happens when pupils leave the school. We speak to an academic consultant at Berkhamsted, which means he works with pupils to help them put their best foot forward to pursue their journeys and to realise their potential, particularly post-sixth form study to university. His name is Mo Tanvir and he's with us right now. Mo, thank you for being here and welcome to this episode of the podcast. How are you today? I'm good, thank you, Simon. It's, uh, just preparing for my first ever podcast, um, so I've never done a podcast before. So uh, here we go. And how does that feel to be doing a podcast? It's always good to step out of our comfort zones, we're told. But you know, when you're actually in that position, how does it feel for you right now? Yeah, that's very much so. Um, my approach is uh, is best to sort of suck it and see. So um, rather than worrying about it beforehand, I just thought I'd throw myself in the moment and. Uh, Warts and all, you will uh, get my first podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. I imagine that people have probably have different reactions when the marketing team approach someone in school or outside of school and say, would you mind being on an episode of the podcast? I imagine some people might say, great, I'd love to. Other people might say, oh, I'm not sure about that. And other people might run away screaming. Uh, which of those camps would you put yourself in? No, I don't, I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind selling uh, what I do and uh, talking about, uh, you know, my uh, my interest in uh, in education. I think the, the tricky part is is uh, usually I have a PowerPoint slide or some notes and uh, I've done it before and I'm on stage and there's a bit more sort of uh, going on whereas this is a it's a bit strange just talking into a microphone. Okay well tell us a little bit about your own education I mean when you were at school yourself was it a positive experience? I had a very interesting uh, education experience I was born in Pakistan I uh, went to a state school here in in, in the UK um, and for me education was a phenomenal experience. I was very fortunate to have some amazing teachers who took me under their their wing and uh, under their guidance um, helped me achieve my potential and if I'm honest that's a big part of, of why I've ended up in education. Um, I feel, I, I genuinely feel I have a debt to repay the education sector and society and this is my way of paying it forward. Otherwise, my life would have ended up on a very different path, I believe, where I was growing up and the socioeconomic background of my parents and the situation I was in. Um, so I have I have a lot to, to, to thank education. I imagine that Pakistan is very different to leafy Hertfordshire. Just describe a little bit about what it was like for you growing up in, in Pakistan. And I'm guessing you were fairly young when you left the country, so I'm not sure how old you are, how much of it you remember. But tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I was young when I when I came over. The differences are more about. Um, I mean, this is you know, this is going back to the eighties now. So um, the differences were more about the the value on education and the the ability to be able to invest long term. So you know, thinking about sort of the cost of going to university. You know, think, well, well, why would we go to university for three years and not earn anything? Uh, where you could go work in a supermarket or McDonald's uh, and start to help to pay the mortgage uh, and and the and the and you know food bills and the clothes bills, um, and so I, I distinctly remember you know when I was sixteen seventeen and we had a discussion at school about university. I remember sort of looking around saying to to my friends, "Are you all going to university?" 
because that's not on my radar. Uh, and I distinctly remember having a discussion with my father about whether I could go to university. So it was. it's more about, I think, the, the, the environment I was in at school was very different to the environment I was in at home. That culturally, it was different. Um, I grew up with sort of a foot in two different cultures, um, if you like, the Western culture and the Asian culture. And the Asian culture involved me you know, finishing school and going to the mosque for an hour after school every day, um, or doing my paper rounds in the morning um, to to help with you know earning money, and then at school it was very different. You know, I went to a, a very uh, white middle class school. I was in the minority, um, and so the the that juxtaposition was quite hard. I would say, if I'm honest, uh, for me as a as a teenager, and it was only when I went to university where I found sort of which camp I really sort of stood in. Whereas I think um, when I was 12 to 16, I was sort of just treading or, or walking this sort of tripwire of like not knowing which camp I was in and sort of switching and changing between between camps. What was your experience then of being in that minority back in the 80s and possibly 90s as well? And how would you see that to be different if you were in that same situation, but here in 2022? I think a lot of it is perception. And when I was young, you know, this was sort of pre-internet, pre-sort of social media. So you only have your own experiences. And, and a lot of people, and I include university in this as well, a lot of people that age, and probably it's still true now, is, is we don't talk about our true feelings. So we create this facade, we create this image. So you've got to, it's got to look like work is easy to you at university or at school. Um, and so I pretended um, I kind of fitted in, but the reality was uh, I was I was quite lost between between the two camps because I didn't really know which way, um, uh, where, where my sort of beliefs and knowledge and, and understanding stood. And so when I was that age, I... I probably had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about the, the challenges I was facing, partly because I thought that nobody else was facing them and, and they were just me and I had to deal with these cultural clashes and I had to deal with the, with this East meets West kind of uh, thing that, 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 that I was faced with. Um, but actually now, having grown up and you know experienced life, actually, I don't think, um, I think lots of people and actually even people who grew up in the UK at that school were facing cultural clashes and and actually even people who are coming from middle class backgrounds or even even more wealthier backgrounds actually also had their own uh, challenges um that's something that i've realized over time but you know when you're young you kind of only see your own sort of immediate challenges um but uh, having spoken to my friends who i'm still in touch with now that we're you know in our 30s and 40s it turns out that everybody had their own challenges going on. I remember a friend of mine once said to me one time, Simon, there's always a backstory. And uh, and I've always remembered that, you know, whenever I meet people, whenever I speak to people, you always discover that even though there is that facade that you talk about, there's so often a backstory behind it. But I'd love to understand then a little bit about how you transitioned then from school life to further education to into the university scene. I think, um, yeah, I mean, what you've just said about backstory, I think that's that, that's something that stuck with me because... When I tell you about my journey after school, I think now I meet people, people assume a certain backstory. They don't necessarily, because of, of my experiences since school. So I was very fortunate. I got a place to study economics at Cambridge University. Um, it was life-changing. Um, after three years there, I went to become an investment banker. I worked in Madrid. I worked in London. And then after that, uh, I decided that investment banking wasn't quite for me. So I transitioned into education and I've been in education uh, ever since. Um, and I've been very fortunate at teaching at some of the top independent schools in the country. Um, and I've also been involved with work at the Cambridge University, at the business school at Cambridge. 
And now when I meet people, because they meet me in that context, um, they, th they think that they know my backstory. Um, but then they're surprised when I tell them that my mother is illiterate. My mother doesn't speak a word of English, can't write her own name. Um, you know, they're, they're surprised that I wasn't born in this country. They're, uh, you know, there's, 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 there's lots of things that don't really marry up, if you like, between their perception and reality. And that's because I think, um, you know, I'm a product of everybody I've been in contact with. And I've been very fortunate that I've had people who've been incredible mentors uh, and have guided me. And I'm still in touch with those, some of those mentors, you know, 20, 25 years on, um, because I, I, I really do owe them a huge, a huge debt. And so, yeah, so my journey's been sort of fascinating, but it's not one that I could have you know, predicted. I mean, back when I was 16, the idea of giving a talk to my peers in class would have petrified me. And now I give public lectures to, you know, to people, you know, 300, 400 people. Um, uh, and, um, and I would never have predicted that. So I think that's something that uh, life has taught me is that you, uh, you, uh, I heard an old adage, which was something like, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him you have a plan and uh, and I, and I really feel that I, you know every 3 or 4 years my life has turned and sometimes for good sometimes for worse but um another phrase that I've always kind of stuck by which is um it will all be all right in the end if it's not all right then it's not the end and that's kind of got me through no no I love that I really do mo tell us a little bit about the role that you do there in school and how it helps the students who are there so my role at Berkeley said is is quite a unique one so um I don't teach academic lessons um my my area is economics but I don't teach economics my role here is to help nurture intellectual curiosity um, and promote academic enrichment. It's for both pupils and staff um, who, who also um, get in touch with me um, to have like a point person to help guide them um, and to help them pursue interests beyond the academic syllabus. So what we found is, you know, we've got lots of excellent teachers who teach um, the, the syllabus really well, but we have pupils who, who want to go off piece, who want to go rogue from the syllabus. And what I do is give them an avenue to pursue that. So what they would do is they would book uh, pupils book in meetings with me one on one, um, sometimes in groups. Um, and I do courses with them. It might be critical thinking courses. It might be just chats to help them discover what their passion is. Um, they may think their passion is X, but it might end up being Y. And we end up talking and as they grow through the school, so year 10 to 11 to 12 to 13, they'll get to know me and they'll some some students end up having weekly meetings with me. Some see me every couple of months, um, whenever they need to. Um, and we kind of just help them explore this curiosity and, and the kind of message that they receive and, and we want them to receive is that it's fun to be throwing yourself into your own intellectual curiosities. And if you are interested in something, there's a, an, an excellent chance, as in there will be somebody else in the world who also finds that fascinating, no matter how niche or in inverted commas geeky you may think it is and my role is to show them that that that, that is uh, that is fun it's rewarding and it's enjoyable do you think that there is a tendency i'm thinking about parents of some of the children here a tendency on the parents part to 
to, to almost disregard any of those intellectual curiosities that you mention, or discovering what somebody's passion is, and to try to encourage their children to be channeled down a path of traditional studies, such as going to university and studying English or maths, or, or, or dare I say, economics as well. I think my experience here has been, and it's my experience of, of working with uh, parents across the spectrum, um, across um, uh, different types of schools and different age groups, is Actually, I think parents kind of realise that the world is not about knowledge, like lots of people will accumulate degrees and A-levels and GCSEs, but it's really about what differentiates you on top of that. And and increasingly, the world is about the skills you have um, and, and the way you think. So, for example, when we offer a critical thinking course, we don't have a shortage of, of, of hands that go up of people, pupils who want to voluntarily um, do this uh, in their spare time. Um, and it's not because it's going to help them with a specific exam, but because it's going to make them you know, critical thinkers, better students and better adults. Um, and that's been my experience across the board. I think, I think what tends to happen sometimes is there are sort of pinch points where people have to focus on their GCSEs or have to focus on their A-levels. And, and, I, and I understand that. But, you know, I'm preparing pupils right now to send off their Oxbridge applications for, for university. And that's very much about your thinking, not your knowledge. You know, everybody's got three A levels. Everybody's going to do the entrance test, um, and everybody's got stellar GCSE grades. Um, so it's about what's going to differentiate you. And I think my role here is to show pupils and parents what what that looks like. But my experience has been very much that 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 parents and pupils love the fact that this role exists and that they they can do this that they that they've got somebody to bounce ideas off and can pursue it i think um you know the the days where if you got 3 b's or 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 something then you could still go to uh you know a top tier university those days are gone it's super competitive now and so you've got to look at what differentiates you beyond your 3 a's or 3 a stars we we sometimes hear in the media that that is dominated by the independent school sector. Equally, though, we often hear in the media that increasingly, if you're at a state school, then in some ways it's it's easier to get to Oxbridge. If you're a, a pupil at a school like Berkhamsted, what do you need to do differently to other pupils around the around the country to secure a place at Oxbridge? First of all, I don't think there's there is any any such thing as a, as an easy application or an easier path. Um, you know, I'm I'm heavily involved in 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 Oxbridge. I have been for for a big chunk of my my professional life. Um, I think I think what's happened is that quite rightly, Oxbridge now um, do a lot more outreach and make their opportunities more more students aware of their of their opportunities. And whereas maybe thirty years ago. If you were a marginal candidate from the independent sector, maybe you would get in because the, the, the Oxbridge uh, institutions were not getting that many applications. Um, but now what's happened, if you like, is if the, the playing field has been levelled. Um, and my experience, and I've been doing this for 15 years, has been that strong and good applicants uh, from the independent sector still get in. And uh, it's the marginal ones that, 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 that are outcompeted by better students uh, from the the state sector, and I think I think I have no qualms with that and no issues with that. I mean, the other thing I should say is um, Oxbridge is you know it's not the be all and end all. It, it is a good place to study some excellent courses, but really Oxbridge, if you like, may be one metric of success. But um, something that I'm keen to stress is to, to the students and to parents and to staff as well, which is what we're trying to do, like we try to do in in other forms of education, A levels, GCSEs. We're trying to just give 
students the best guidance um, for them and the mechanisms by which they can put their best foot forward. What then results from that, you know, the chips will fall where they will fall. But uh, maybe a student comes to me and actually after discussions, we discover that they really want to do medicine. But actually, the Cambridge medical course is not right for them. You know, I was talking to a student this week where they want to do veterinary science. But they're really hands-on. They're really practical with their the, what the stuff they're interested in in veterinary science world. And Cambridge probably isn't the right place for them. And we had that chat. Um, so I'm very much not, it's not about getting kids into Oxbridge. It's about, are you going to be happy at Oxbridge? Is it the right course that you want to do? Or is it that you've just been put onto this conveyor belt or treadmill and suddenly you're on a journey towards Oxbridge? For some people, you know, American universities are better because they have a more liberal, more wider um, uh, university courses. Um, and um, so I think for me, uh, to sort of... Uh, to, to first of all, to say that you know, Oxbridge is not be all and end all, but my role is to just keep that conversation going to make sure that they're applying for the right course. Going back to sort of your initial question of, um, you know, uh, independent sector versus uh, the state sector, I think my experience of is I don't, I very rarely am surprised at who gets in. And that what I mean by that is whether I have a state sector pupil or an independent sector, if they're brilliant, I find that they are successful. What I find now is in, in both areas, whether they're a marginal candidate from the state sector or a marginal candidate from the independent sector, they're more likely to, to not get a place, whereas 30 years ago, they would have done. I see. Right. So there where you mentioned about a pupil from the state sector. So I'm guessing then that you work with a couple of state schools as well as the independent sector? Correct. So, uh, yeah, I um, I have a portfolio of schools that I that I look after, um, sometimes um, working with uh, institutions, higher, higher education institutions, sometimes state sectors from different different walks of, of life students and uh, and also independent sector, uh, different different levels of, of, of independent sector education as well. So it strikes me then without wanting to, to, to put words in your mouth, but your your background of of coming from a different country of being in the state sector for your own education and then going to Cambridge for university and now working in the independent sector but equally straddling across into the state sector with the in your career that kind of i mean i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to put words in your mouth but that kind of indicates your absolutely ideally lined up for this role at Berkhamsted. Yes, I think you certainly certainly I've got, I don't have sort of one vision of what a student looks like or what education looks like or I don't have one perspective. You know, I I've I've taught kids from you know what I guess would be traditionally considered sort of you know very wealthy uh, middle class families, and I've I've taught students who come from my own kind of background. Um, I've taught kids who are refugees. I've taught kids who are immigrants. I've taught you know I've taught I've taught the whole um, range. And certainly, I think what that does is it gives me insights into different metrics of success. What what may look like success for one child might be different. But it also, I think, has given me a good experience of knowing what a trajectory of a particular child could look like. So mm -hmm. I might meet a student who, on paper right now, um, is not ready for the journey. But I can, I can, I've got the experience to project that twelve months work or two years work, and 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 they will be on. They can get on that trajectory. And equally, um, I can, you know, I I've got a good sense of of students who have reached their zenith where they are, and that's fine. But actually, the next level up is maybe a leap too too much for them. And I think that's what working in different kinds of schools and different kinds of backgrounds. Um, that's the kind of insights uh, that that's given me. And I'm guessing then that the advice that you give 
give to students will vary from one student to the next. I mean, I, I very much presume that that's the case. But if I was to ask you right now, if there was one sort of nugget of advice that you would offer to all students who are looking to continue their education, what might that be? I think it comes back to, to the idea that I think it's really fun and interesting to pursue your intellectual curiosities for their own sake. Too often, I will have students who are at the beginning will say, well, do I need to know this? Or is this needed for an Oxbridge application? Or what happens if somebody else has also read this book? And I'm saying you're, you're getting distracted by, by, you know, frameworks and structures, but actually just enjoy it. If this is what you actually write. So for example, where I start with all of my students, they always send me a paragraph or more about why they want to study their subject or, or why they want to do Oxbridge. And I actually sort of almost th end up throwing it away or crossing it out and say, look, just tell me honestly, why do you want to do physics or why do you want to do philosophy and when you get them talking almost like a podcast scenario when you get them talking they the honesty comes out and you actually realize actually it's because they really really love reading about abstract philosophy but they don't they don't want to say that on paper because it feels geeky and, and what I always say to those students is it's just perhaps currently where you are but you will go whether you go to university or Oxbridge or anywhere else and you will find your like-minded people. You will find your people who are also equally fascinated by abstract philosophy or fascinated by economics or maths. And when you find them, you will suddenly realise that actually it's quite normal in that world to love your subject. It's something that I really did discover when I left my school and my hometown and went to Cambridge. I found lots of other Asians with my background who loved economics, who loved academia, but when I was growing up, I was the only one. And it's kind of this idea of this is why I know that the role models are so influential. Um, but what I would say to these kids, um, to everybody, is if you are interested in something, trust me, somebody somewhere else will love to talk to you about your interest because they will also be interested. Oh, I love that. I really do. Thank you for sharing that with us, Mo. I'm keeping an eye on time. We do need to bring this podcast episode to a close in a moment. But two questions that we always ask guests who come on uh, to each episode is, first of all, what have you changed your mind about in the last couple of years? I guess, uh, what have I changed my mind about? Um, I mean, here's a, here's a personal sort of anecdote, um, just because it's quite recent. So, you know, what was it about? Five years ago, I couldn't swim um, for various reasons. My life has, ne has never taken me to a swimming pool very often. And, and uh, so I could never swim. And it's always been a thing in the back of my mind. So at the age of what it was, 33, 34, I bit the bullet and uh, I started to have swimming lessons. Um, and um, I it took a lot of resilience. You know, I was sort of the only adult in the pool uh, getting lessons. and uh, And it was hard. But then sort of come sort of five years forward, I've just finished my second uh, sprint triathlon. So I did two sprint triathlons this year. And to me, um, the thing that sort of that's really helped me change my mind about is, um, is the fact that you're kind of never too old to, um, to change your life, however you want to change it, you know, uh, that's not just, you know, in, in this case, swimming, but, you know, running or, or exercise, but also uh, career changes. You know, I, I'm doing something now, you know, 15 years ago, I was a banker in Madrid. Um, if you told me I'd be on a podcast with you talking about my, my role at Berkhamsted School, you know, I couldn't think of how that would ever happen. So I think my, uh, the thing I've learned 
particularly over the last few years, is sort of to face my fears, but also that nothing is really impossible as long as I'm willing to put the time in. I love that. I really do. Uh, I'm feeling quite, feeling quite inspired now, Mo. And then lastly, what has been your remarkable moment at Berkhamsted? I think Berkhamsted, I mean, in education in general, you know, why am I in, in education? It's for the pupils, right? It's the pupils I work with. And um, and they're not my successes. Any success that I have, I always feel are my pupils' success. It's their successes. I've just been privileged enough to be a guest, uh, a passenger on that journey. And if I've helped in any way, even better. So I think my my remarkable moment at Berkhamsted is we offer a number of bursaries and, and scholarships um, to pupils who, if I'm honest, were kind of are in or were in situations that I can identify with from my own background and upbringing. And seeing uh, those particular students um, achieve their potential, um, go to Oxbridge, um, and I'm still in touch with them. In fact, one of them um, I had coffee with last week and, and we were talking about their progress currently at Cambridge. To me, that to me is 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 why I'm in education, um, and it's where uh, making making that difference um, and hearing those stories, and hopefully those pupils, just like I I am doing now, I'm paying forward a debt that I owe to my teachers. I'm hoping that those students will pay that debt forward themselves um, when the time comes to somebody else who is less fortunate than themselves. Um, so my remarkable moment would be summarised in um, seeing pupils lives um, and it's no sort of small point but changed completely like phenomenally transformed from where they were before they joined Berkhamsted to where they were after they left Berkhamsted. It's great to hear, hear you talking about their transformation Mo it's been great hearing about your transformation as well all the way from Pakistan through to Cambridge through to Berkhamsted thank you very much for being here I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much Simon thank you. So that was Berkhamsted's academic consultant, Mo Tanvir, speaking to us all about how life at Berkhamsted can shape what your life becomes after Berkhamsted. Mo, it was amazing hearing your story. Thank you for sharing it with us here today. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.